0: Okay, so some initial thoughts from me. And just to say, this is a, a, a bit unusual for me. So we've done, I think, four or five events at Conway Hall, but this is, uh, usually I just introduce or you know do some facilitation, but this is the first time I'm actually presenting a little bit more about myself and, and my journey and so on. So uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, I was born. Uh, I, was a, I was a small human being, at some point, like the rest of you. Um, I grew up in South London, I had a pretty happy childhood. Um, these are my parents, Ian and Liz. Uh, my, my dad had a removals company and then retrained as a computer programmer. And for, and for as long as I can remember, I was surrounded by computers, and code is very much like a second language to me. Uh, my mum was a primary school teacher. Um, my grandfather was, is Indian. He actually left home before even my mother was born. But we had this interesting situation in my family when uh, my mother was, was brown and experienced aspects of racism, but her children were all white passing and never had quite the same experience, but it stimulated many interesting conversations about race and social justice within our family. I went to Oxford to study physics, and it was during my time at Oxford that I had uh, A first wake-up call to life, really, a taste of tragedy, of initiation, when both of my parents died within three months of each other from apparently unrelated causes. Uh, My father was an addict, a high-functioning addict, throughout his life, addicted to fast food, spending, gambling, cigarettes, alcohol, and heroin. And I would find burnt spoons and other paraphernalia in the basement of our family home at an age where I was too young to really know or want to know what it was all about. But... Uh, yeah he, he went into hospital with liver problems and his organs just shut down one by one after following weeks so that episode gave me cause to think deeply about what was important to in life to me in life about meaning about purpose and how I wanted to live my life given that my parents died at 50 and I was already what 22 at that stage I might or you know it was already halfway through my life potentially what am I going to do with the second half of it so I finished my physics degree, I specialised in quantum field theory and condensed matter physics, and I did my dissertation on community detection in networks where I got my first taste of complexity science. Complexity science is the study of complex systems, systems with many interacting parts such that you can't understand the behaviour of the system by studying the parts in isolation. The interconnections, the interactions between the different parts of the system are fundamental to how the system behaves. And I spent my time looking at these kind of pretty networks, pretty pictures of networks. I went on to do a Master's in Complexity Sciences at Bristol, uh, where I did projects in computation modeling of bacterial colonies and automated trading agents in financial markets. I have funding to continue to do a PhD, but the last minute I dropped out and went to live in France. And after four months, I returned to the UK and immersed myself in the world of climate activism, uh, initially with this group, the Camp for Climate Action, or Climate Camp. So pictured here is the the first and only climate camp that I went to. uh, at the headquarters of the Royal Bank of Scotland, which is this incredible glass building with the moat around it, and it was the perfect uh, setup to kind of lay siege to it, sort of medieval style. And there was even a, we had a catapult that would fire sticky black molasses at the glass of the building. Um, it was really a, a theatre. Uh, with friends from UK Uncut, I started the the anti austerity group UK Uncut, and we uh, we were pointing out that. The government said they had to introduce this program of austerity, have these billions of pounds worth of cuts to public services, yet, at that time, 25 billion pounds each year was going uncollected through tax avoidance and evasion by large corporates. We thought, hmm, something isn't right here. Why not simply collect the money rather than cutting the public services we rely on? Our tactic was to occupy the high street stores of companies that were implicated in these dodgy tax practices, and we staged one very high-profile occupation of of Topshop. Uh, we also then went on to uh, do some campaigning on the NHS around the time that the government 's introducing the health and social care bill and uh, we blocked Westminster bridge and that might if some of you have recently participated in some of extinction rebellion 's uh, bridge actions then you 'll be familiar with this kind of thing. Um, and uh, here I am on the, in, in the Guardian, uh, sitting up top of a tripod. I didn't make this sign, although you know I, it would have, I would have been proud to. It was handed to me by a small child on the day. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, my, I came from this world of, of, of activism and, and direct action. I guess one more slide on that. Um, I was arrested in the occupation of Fortnum & Mason's, the upmarket department store in Piccadilly, and ended up in a two-week uh, trial at the Crown Court. Uh, where we uh, had one, as had as one of our expert witnesses, John McDonnell MP, now the shadow chancellor, um, eventually we were found not guilty. (laughs) So uh, during that time, I did the whole NGO thing. I worked for a bunch of respectable, reputable organizations. Uh, I was the youngest ever board member of Greenpeace UK. And uh, I got a lot from that time, but it seemed to me that something wasn't quite right, something was missing, that it was all a little bit to surface level, if you like. And things started to change for me when I had my first psychedelic experience at Shambhala Festival in 2012. So I'd come to know a little bit about Uh, the ideas of unity and interconnectedness and interdependence through my studies in quantum field theory and complexity sciences. But my first psychedelic experience on a substance called 2CB, which was the favourite of the famous uh, psychedelic chemist Alexander Shulgin, I understand, um, was the first time I really had this embodied sense of that unity and interconnectedness, of my boundaries dissolving and of connecting with something greater, of connecting with some cosmic consciousness. And uh, indeed, it was profound. Uh, a couple of years later, I found myself at Nowhere Festival, which is one of the European Burning Man events. Uh, an amazing place where uh, it's, it's fully co-created. There's a tiny core crew that provides simply toilets and medical care, and then everything else is the responsibility of the participants to bring and put on. You, you are the show. You are your own entertainment. And amongst other things, at Nowhere, there is, a at least relatively, a... a a really responsible use of psychoactive substances, including psychedelics. And certainly more than any other festival kind of recreation space that I'd been involved in in the UK, and I found this hugely inspiring. It just, it's just so much more fun, so much more safe when people can have open conversations about a whole range of substances, rather than simply being pushed towards, well, typically alcohol, you know, and the other few substances that are available, somewhat popular within the UK festival scene, at least. So I came back from nowhere. It's actually on the plane back from nowhere that I, I sort of sketched the, the words to "the psychedelic society" for the first time, and. Uh, Yes, this organization was born uh, first based on this idea of cognitive liberty, that people should have the freedom to alter their consciousness in whichever way they choose. And it's not the business of the state to tell us how we can and can't do that. So some of the early stunts that we did, uh, well, here we are... Uh, nitrous oxide in parliament square. This was the day before the introduction of the uh, psychoactive substances bill which banned all psychoactive substances apart from alcohol, nicotine and caffeine. So at this point nitrous oxide was still legal to, uh, to, to trade and it's still legal to possess incidentally. So, uh, we had about 100 people uh, all doing a mass inhalation of nitrous oxide balloons. I think there, there may have been more press there than there were uh, protesters, if you like. But still, it was, it was a colourful occasion. And, you know, and, and did uh, seek to uh, put forward an important point, that this substance and, and many others are, uh, yeah, apart from anything else, significantly less harmful than alcohol and nicotine, uh, which, of course, are legal still. So. The psychedelic Society has continued to evolve. Uh, We now have three main areas of activity. Uh, We run experience retreats in the Netherlands where we take groups of 15 people at a time over to houses in the countryside outside of Amsterdam for four days. And on the Saturday daytime, the group has an experience with psilocybin truffles, which are a kind of magic mushroom that are legal in the Netherlands. Uh, Our events program, we have events going on almost every day now in, in London and many going on in Bristol and we campaign for access and public understanding of psychedelic substances and our current campaign is calling for the rescheduling of psilocybin from schedule 1 to schedule 2 to make it easier and cheaper for scientists to research and for make it and to make it possible for doctors to prescribe psilocybin when they're satisfied with the available body of research so my first major experience of, of psychedelics as plant medicines came in December 2017 when I traveled to Peru for a 10-day dieta with Ayahuasca and Noirao under the care of this remarkable woman, Manuela. Uh, This was in a Shipibo community in the Amazon. And this this opened up a whole new world for me uh, by really connecting psychedelics with their uh, indigenous use, if you like. And one year on, I was uh, delighted to discover Extinction Rebellion. Uh, From the moment I saw it, I was like, yes, this is going to be good. Um, I appreciated the fact that the framing was around extinction rather than simply climate or any other given uh, ecological issue that you could pick up on, that it seemed to get to a level deeper than anything I had seen before. Uh, I love the symbol. i i I really appreciate just the, the the art the beauty the aesthetic of the movement that's something that's been paid attention to from the beginning and uh, the I, the fact I knew people key people in the movement at the time had experience with plant medicines and sacred activism you might say was also a big inspiration to me so yeah i I went to uh, i 've been to several extinction rebellion uh, protests and demonstrations, the the initial declaration of rebellion, and then the uh, the blocking of the five bridges and it 's been interesting to now have this period where the action has has settled subsided somewhat and we've uh, well, i 've had some time to, to think and uh, one very uh, important part of the jigsaw for me has been this book by Charles Eisenstein Climate: a New Story. Um, So, uh, I have a couple of clips of Charles speaking, which will give you some idea of of what goes on in this book.
1: A new story, Uh, and the purpose of the title, partly is because it is about climate, and most people don't read anything that has climate in the title. So I thought, okay, because like, right, I already know what it's gonna say, and, and I feel helpless to do anything about it. And, and you know it's just too depressing, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I also put a new story in there. But also because it's accurate to the content. Because it says that, or one thing it says is that the basic narrative that we have around climate change is itself part of the problem. That climate change is a lot bigger than we think it is. that. We have put way too much emphasis on fossil fuels and emissions, and not nearly enough emphasis on ecosystems, biodiversity, water, soil, forests, wetlands, and so forth. And the reason for that, the reason we need to put more emphasis on that is that this planet is alive, not just a complicated machine whose inputs we can monkey with to create a better result, but that it's a living being, and that through what is called development, we are destroying the organs and the tissues of this living being. That's what the forests are. That's what the coral reefs are. That's what the, the, the wetlands are, the mangroves, uh, the grasslands. These are organs of a living being. And we degrade those. And then the body of this being becomes less capable of dealing with challenges, one of those challenges could be rising levels of atmospheric gases. But it could be other challenges, too. And if we keep, so basically my thesis is, and, and you know, I have a lot of, I, I cite various um, science um, to substantiate it, but my thesis is basically that even if we cut emissions to zero overnight, if we continue to degrade the biosphere, the planet will still die a death of a million cuts. And that we might not even face global warming. We could face global cooling. We could face climate derangement, where we have these gyrations and fluctuations uh, of, of like, 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 if your body were unable to maintain a, uh, its constant temperature anymore, unable to maintain homeostasis because of one organ after another is getting degraded. Like, that's the crisis that we face. So basically, then we need to shift toward earth care, toward regeneration, toward conservation, um, toward healing what has been damaged over hundreds and hundreds of years. Like in New Zealand, most of the rivers are so poisoned you can't even wade in them, like much less swim or drink from them. And that's not because of climate change. That's because of, you know, agricultural runoff and toxic pollution and, and mining and things like that, and that kind of seems like, you know, in the dominant narrative, that's not an existential threat to the planet. You know, it's like that kind of comes second. First thing is carbon, and then we can, you know, deal with the toxic waste and stuff like that and the plastics and things like that. Uh, and I think that mentality is mistaken. I think that we that it really is the opposite. That the we cannot have a healthy planet without healthy rivers. So that brings the focus of environmental urgency to a more local level, which also is more tangible. Um, doesn't require trust in the institutions of science that you know whose computer models tell us that in 50 years sea levels are going to rise by whatever. But like we can see the we can see the damage right in front of our face here and now, and we. We can um, act on it here and now. And that doesn't mean that we can continue business as usual and you know, pick up the litter. No, this is, requires a fundamental change to our relationship to this material world, a change toward every single decision takes into account more than just ourselves.
0: Okay, I have a couple more, but in the interest of time, I think I'll, I'll skip them for now, and maybe we'll come back to them later. <coughs> so this is, well, uh, actually an amalgamation of two quotes from the book, just to reinforce the point um, that is that seems uh Incredibly important to me, the paradigm shift when it comes to climate is a shift from a geomechanical view to a Gaian view, a living systems view. From the living systems perspective, we see that climate health depends on the health of local ecosystems everywhere. It isn't about more cleverly valuing and utilising nature. It is about genuine respect for nature, which can come only by seeing it as a being in all fullness and holding it sacred. So. I will play this clip, which is from the film "A Luna," which is mentioned uh, in that book. Um, so this follows uh, members of the Kogi tribe of Colombia. Uh, and in this scene, they're talking uh, to a, a scientist that's told them there's no way that blocking the coastal lagoons, which with, they've been familiar for thousands of years, could possibly be affecting the ecosystems on the mountains uh, up where they live, like miles away. <laughs>
2: 고플럭톤을 그 시자전을 키웠어. 네 매일이 저런 거
3: 시자전. 추먹지? 그거. argparse 틀을 보내 하봐.
2: 내가 내가 그거부터 해키 아코파네게저가셔. 토야. 나 지금
3: 도착 먹는 거 넣을 not Not that good, clearly.
0: Um yeah, and I mean, and later in the film, they find other scientists which confirm indeed the, the, the Kogi through, through different means, but have, have a totally correct understanding of the interdependence of these local ecosystems. But the key line in that for me is if you knew she could feel, you'd stop. That speaks to this, this guy in this living systems view, where we actually start seeing not only other animals, other species, but actually rocks and rivers and mountains and forests as alive as in some way and deserving of our respects and indeed our love. So uh, just a, a bit of an overview of what I consider that step from the old story to the new story. You've mentioned geomechanical to Gaia and I think uh, some of the other terms we could use that all have a you know, degree of, of overlap or in, in some cases near equivalent. Sustainable to regenerative, linear to nonlinear, complicated to complex, rivalrous to anti-rivalrous, fragile to anti-fragile, materialist to idealist or animist, postmodern to metamodern. So I'm not expecting everyone here to necessarily understand all of those words but perhaps if some of them uh, capture your interest you can go away and look some of them up afterwards and decide for yourself whether they feel part of this new story to you. So but, of course, as i yeah the, the new story is is more than, than an idea than an idea it's more than something to simply be intellectually grasped I, I propose it's something to be felt and embodied there's some it's one thing like hearing okay, yeah you know guy and worldview uh, it's a living system, but like what does it take to really feel that and uh, indeed, what tools, techniques, and practices can help us make this shift into the new story uh, so there have been some, some people, even in recent times, that have had some ideas on this. Uh, so this is uh, one of my favorite authors, Alan Watts, uh, who, I've lost the beginning of this quote actually, but uh, yeah, he's, he's saying you know, what, what techniques are there that can uh, get us out of this sense of being in competition and conflict with every other object in our experience and, in set, and instead feeling uh, that a sense of of basic oneness and and unity with all that we perceive. And he says, there are innumerable recipes for this project, almost all of which have something to recommend them. There are the practices of yoga, meditation, dervish dancing, psychotherapy, various methods of prayer, psychodrama, group dynamics, sensory awareness techniques, self-hypnosis, and the use of consciousness-changing chemicals such as LSD and mescaline. For slightly more contemporary reference, we could look to Rupert Sheldrake. This book is being released next week, I believe. Uh, It's called Ways to Go Beyond. And in this book, uh, Rupert is going to explore seven different techniques that uh, he's he's found personally and and has seen evidence can bring about mystical, spiritual, type experiences, the hallmark of which is this sense of of the unity and interconnectedness of all things. So uh, the chapters in the book you'll find cannabis, psychedelics and spiritual openings, participation in sports to induce feelings of flow, learning from animals to deepen our relationship with non-human nature, fasting, praying, observing holy days and festivals, and cultivating good habits. So there's clearly some overlap with the ideas of, of Alan Watts there. I think I'm going to have to skip the goat. Um, and sorry. Um, so uh, does it? <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll come back. Um, does, uh, so I mean, so the, the, some of the overlap there between between Watts and Sheldrake what, uh, was was clearly psychedelics, and, and you know it's uh, one of the topics of the evening. Uh, do they work? Well, the answer is. Is, is yes, certainly according to the, the scientific paradigm. Uh, there's some fascinating... I mean, for some time we've known that psychedelics can induce these mystical spiritual type experiences uh, with this feeling of, of interconnectedness. But over the last couple of years, there's increasing amount of research coming out specifically in the topic of, of, of nature connection and nature relatedness and so on. So this is just one paper from, I think, it was towards the end of 2017. Um and yeah, I'll, I will read this abstract. So in a large-scale population online study, we investigated the relationship between past experience with classic psychedelic substances, e.g. LST, psilocybin, mescaline, nature-relatedness, and ecological behavior, e.g. saving water and recycling. Uh, we found that experience with class, classic psychedelics uniquely predicted self-reported engagement in pro-environmental behaviors, and that this relationship was statistically explained by people's degree of self-identification with nature a model controlled for experiences with other classes of psychoactive substances, as well as personality traits that usually predict drug consumption and or nature-relatedness. Although correlational in nature, results suggest that lifetime experience with psychedelics in particular may indeed contribute to people's pro-environmental behaviour by changing their self-construal in terms of an incorporation of the natural world, regardless of core personality traits or propensity to consume mind-altering substances. So we can understand, if the, the thread here is, if we accept that the key shift is a shift from this geomechanical view into this Gaian living systems view, then there exist practices, powerful practices out there that can actually give people this, this deep embodied sense of that connection with, with the other, with nature. And one of the one of these practices, one of these tools that is, has been shown in in peer-reviewed uh, literature, and indeed many of you may have personal experience with, uh, is uh, our psychedelic substances, psychedelic experiences. Now, I'm not suggesting that psychedelics are uh, the only way, or necessarily even the best way for many people to. To experience a sense of, of of oneness with nature, but it seems clear that they are a, a very good way, and we, at the very least, we can add this to the growing list of reasons why we might want to rethink the laws around psychedelics. Uh, you know, in in time, perhaps to make a significant difference to the health of the biosphere. Um, and so this is uh, this is an illustration uh, inspired by the book *The Fifth Sacred Thing*, which is kind of uh, depicts an, an eco utopia. And I, I truly believe that uh, that we have it is within our power to bring about in the worlds of Charles Eisenstein the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. And I'm convinced that psychedelics and, and the, con- the conscious use of psychedelic substances. Uh, can be a very important tool in helping us get to that place. Thank you very much.
3: Um, so I just asked uh, Simon to, um, Stephen, to stay up here. I didn't bring any slides. Um, I've got posh talks of me doing things with slides online where I sound quite clever, and I thought um, it'd be better with the topic tonight to be a bit more vulnerable, and um, I'm really fucking regretting that now, actually. <laughs> I wish I had brought some slides, especially given the setup. But there you go. You uh, make your bed. So... Um Yeah, so I was uh, part of a group called Rising Up that helped to set up Extinction Rebellion that launched at the end of October. And I thought it'd be nice to actually see some hands in the air of, first of all, people that have participated in anything to do with Extinction Rebellion. Uh, Oh, happy days. Welcome. And um, uh, people who are doing organizing uh, with Extinction Rebellion, sort of uh, thank you as well. So maybe just check out those folks, because if you've got questions, they might help as well. Okay, so in terms of psychedelics and social change, uh, a bit of a preamble. I am not an expert in psychedelics. I believe we have a professor of psychedelics here tonight, so whatever I say is just my own personal experience. It's been a big part of my own story, and it's part of the story of the genesis of Extinction Rebellion. But um, there is obviously no official extinction rebellion position on psychedelics, and uh, couldn't possibly encourage people as a movement to take psychedelics. But my own personal view is, um, you know, go and work with these guys. Um, so I'm also really mindful when we're talking about social change, and um, is that okay with the south? I think I'm a bit too close, so it's bit, is that does that work there? Yeah am um, really mindful when talking about um, psychedelics to acknowledge that as the West gets more interested in these medicines, especially as plant spirits, that there's um, an issue of over-cultivation, uh, there's issues of cultural appropriation, and I'm not going to go into details of either of those, but... It feels wrong to be talking, knowing that in the West, we have got a deep habit of extracting things from other cultures and helping ourselves, and that this psychedelic movement has just as much of an issue around that as any other uh, operation in the West, and we need to be mindful of that. My own personal experience has been one of deep gratitude. Um, My experience with psychedelics has uh, thankfully been involved in the gifting of ceremonies from indigenous cultures. and a feeling on my own part that the purpose of them uh, within that gift was to help us here to remember reconnect or somehow reinvent our own connection with the plants from this land Uh, and that's a journey for us all in terms of extinction rebellion and social change i mean not to give you the big speech about that here but we are in a six mass species extinction event it's already happening and the the mass die-off of of plants and animals is is traumatic when you uh, are able and willing to connect with it. And human extinction in my children's lifetime, I have a 13-year-old and 10-year-old boys, is a possibility. Um, There are some scientists that say it's definitely gonna happen. Uh, They're still seen as alarmists, but they've got quite a lot of other stuff, right? And um, a mainstream paper gave it a sort of one in 20 chance. We're already in a catastrophe, and it's definitely going to get worse, and there are many really credible uh, spokespeople, uh, commentators that think think that social collapse is inevitable and is going to happen relatively soon due to sort of collapse in food systems, and when food systems collapse, you get riots and the rise of fascism and that, so we're full of joyful news in Extinction Rebellion. (laughs) Our innovation, I guess, that Roger Hallam brought through, was the idea to tell the truth about where we're at and ask ourselves to be really willing to face that truth and to feel it. So, uh, Extinction Rebellion was established to address the issues, and it, it comes from a deeper place of thinking about what it means to live lives of meaning in these times and also looking at how social change might actually happen. So it's had this kind of interesting balance of the spiritual, and it's not like everybody identifies as being spiritual, it's a bit of a funny word, but lots of people within Extinction Rebellion, sort of organizing, do have that orientation. And then there's also a real kind of nerdy bit of us that have studied social science about how things change. So we deliberately try to establish a social movement and uh, we were really bloody surprised when it sort of seemed to happen. It spreads into, I can't remember the exact figures at the minute, but there are about hundred groups across the UK. There's, um, I think we're about 650 countries involved at the minute across the world. It's definitely captured some kind of zeitgeist. So we've deliberately established this movement and psychedelics had a role to play in it from my own story at least. My own story, uh, and it's swear to start, and I haven't got the slides of me looking cute, but I was quite a cute baby, to be honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> before I had to start bleaching my hair. Um, yeah, you know, I, 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 I came from a coal mining family, and um, I've always, if I'm honest, had an interest in in things changing. I was part of the animal rights movement. I joined the Green Party when I was 14. Uh, And then I sort of went on a bit of a weird one for a while with new labor and um, business in the community. I didn't know I was going to confess to that, but don't hold it against me. (laughs) You do learn something by uh, working in NGOs. So I had my second child in 2008, and something really woke up in me then about wanting to be back in service. And I was part of the transition movement, part of Woodcraft Folk. Around that time I started sitting in a moon group uh, with women every full moon, and we, we still do that, and I'm part of holding that space these days. And not long after that I started sitting uh, in ceremony, um, working with uh, plant medicines. Interestingly, as well as Steve and I, I joined the tax justice movement around 2010. I wrote to John Christensen, who headed up that movement, and said, we need mass civil disobedience, and he said, I agree. There's these wonderful UK Uncut people, look what they're doing. And I uh, spent a lot of time since 2010 trying to do mass civil disobedience and failing. Um, I had little forays into economics, um, into Occupy Democracy, set something up in 2015 called Compassionate Revolution. I also tried to fix the web um, f- around disability and accessibility and tried to get some bikes off the ground. So I think after a while you realize that you've got some kind of social entrepreneurial spirit. And I was once relieved to, to read that um, social entrepreneurs are people that fail a lot. <laughs> uh, it might be my Tory in nature, but I am a bit of a bull and I just brush myself down and get up and think, okay, what do we do? So in 2016 when Compassionate Revolution wasn't really working (laughs) um, and I had been doing uh, medicines for a while and I was looking at some, uh, I mean I've been doing therapies and peer counselling for years and so on. There was a a feeling that there was something at my core that needed addressing, uh, something of being over busy, something of anxiety. And uh, so I made a decision to go on a retreat and do a really big prayer. Uh, it, I, it did involve flying to Costa Rica and I did carbon tax myself with the Tree Sisters and I think there's a deal in flying and it's not to be taken lightly. It was with New Life Iboga, New Life Ayahuasca and um, I am a bit of a warrior and a bit ridiculous and we have got good friends here who can vouch for that I, and I just, you know, fucking in for a penny, in for a pound sort of thing so in the space of two weeks I did a flood dose of Iboga um, which is from the Tabernanth the boga tree, uh, a cambo, uh, plant frog medicine, and three big ayahuasca's. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm a bit mean as welcome from York. She don't go all that way and just dabble, do you? You know what I mean? You're going to get on <laughs> with it. So, um, So, and, and, I, and I suppose, that, so the iboga, I don't know how much people know about that plant medicine, but it's really in and I was, I can tell you, has anybody done a, an boga flood dose? Not that it's all like, you know, but okay, Ooh. <laughs> creds for me then. Um. <laughs> It's fucking scary. I mean, if you watch podcasts about who gets people off heroin, this stuff is an incredible, incredible medicine. And I can't tell you how frightened I was. And it's a longer story than the time available today to tell it. But the build up to the ceremony when I arrived involved almost stepping on the snake and realizing that 27 are deadly, involved losing my luggage, getting lost, um, um, having um, uh, the cat. Come and behead um, an animal in front of me just an hour before I went into ceremony, which is supposed to be for a big shift, shamanically. But you know, seeing this um, uh, lizard, just its tail moving around, there's lots of symbolism if you want to get into that. And because I was really frightened, I'd listened to a lot of Terence McKenna before I went, and uh, uh, Terence was saying, you know, when you're really frightened, don't curl up into a ball. And hope it 's going to go away you 've got to breathe and sing, and he also said in his many I love listening to him, he said there were codes in the higher consciousness, and I you know like i'm a, I have a scientific background, so I sort of part of me is like constantly denying the experiences that I've actually had because it 's like a bit weird, but um I was also willing to think maybe there 's codes in the higher consciousness so as well as wanting to do the inner work on myself, I also wanted to pray for what I was calling the codes for social change. I was thinking there must be something that I'm missing, what I might not do in here, you know, what are the, these codes for social change, and it was a very specific prayer. So um, so I, I want to, I'll come finish that story in a bit, but I want to say I think there are My own feeling is that there are three different roles for psychedelics in social change, and hopefully there's a lot more, but the first one to name is getting yourself in good shape for this work. Um, It can be called activism, but I see, you know, doing the work on yourself as being part of activism And so uh, the Aboga flood dose, to cut a long story short, um, involved just before I went into the, I don't know if you know, you get a taxi, you like can't stand up bring like a baby deer, and then you get all this mad buzzing in your head and then you start vomiting. And my medicine woman had said, if it gets really frightening, just ask the plant what's moving. And it got really frightening. And I go, okay, okay, well, you know, what's moving? And literally this voice here just went, resistance. I surrender, I surrender, I surrender. <laughs> and I had this download on the taster session about brains and, and neural pathways, and uh, that was the night before, and I felt in complete despair in it. It was awful. So here I was, you know, with it, when you do a fob dose, you have to take what? You have to take a tablet every two hours. It's not like you just neck it and fuck it, you're in it. You know, you've got to kind of be quite committed to this thing. Um, uh, anyway, there's a moment at which you sort of lay down, there's a doctor on hand, you had to have your heart scanned and your liver scanned to do this process, there's a doctor taking your blood pressure to make sure you're not going to die and they've got geren- you know, it's a big deal. Um, and anyway, I laid down thinking, okay, you know, here we go. Um, and this voice, again, it felt very external, these two voices said to me, Gail, you create your own reality. And they said it three times, because I do sometimes need telling. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so I just laid down and thought, fuck it, then I'll be happy, and indeed that was my entire experience of this Aboga journey, was that I get to be happy, and that my brain got rewired for happiness. Every time I had a negative thought, I could feel it, I could feel neural pathways being pulled out. It was just brain rewiring. It was an incredible experience, and um, I don't believe life's about being happy. I think it's about more than that, but certainly be happy when it's there and it's available. So um, I am much less, I, I'm a different person. I'm not ang- anxious. Uh, well, I'm a bit anxious now, to be honest. Am I going over time, Stephen? Um, <coughs> so, um, so I think there is a part of getting ourselves in good shape. I realized that I had to come home. I had to end a, a marriage. I had to leave, um, separate a family. Um, change housing, change my situation. That was a big deal, doing that, but it was the right thing um, for, mi- for myself, at least. And I really honour the people that have done the t- taken the time to take space. So some of the climate activists from climate camp went off and did Dark Mountain, for example, and took the time for themselves, and I think that's important. So the second thing I think is um, useful from psychedelics is building community. Uh, my experience of working with mescaline-based plants like peyote and San Pedro is very much, you know, you you talk to the grandfather about what it is you want, and you get the opposite. You get your ass kicked for the night, and you vomit together in buckets. And then, by the morning, something shifted. It's like the opposite of taking a knee. Um, <laughs> and I, I wanted to bring that sort of community. Um, Peace into Rising Up, which is the organization that brought Extinction Rebellion together. And so we've done ceremonies together, uh, more using Hawthorne, which is legal, obviously. The maybe haven't worked out. It's quite psychoactive. Um, it's all on your doorstep, the cool stuff, you know, mugwort and hawthorn, Hawthorne. Um, so we, we worked with that as a medicine one time Um I also got the honour of being invited to a community of uh, people working on social change last year, uh, which involves some mescaline plants as well. And um, through that, I got this, who knows if it's a download, but it felt to me that um, a big piece of the work we need to do is working on that which divides us. You know, there's a separation, not just from nature, but all the oppressions around gender and class and race and age and and you know ability, and here's where, as an activist, you feel really shit in case you have not name somebody's oppression because you're not allowed to miss somebody off but um uh so i i I have a feeling that for me i i I feel like with anti oppression work or justice work that there's a piece that is about the patterning in our brains, both the internalised oppression, say as a woman or a working class person, or as a white woman, the the racism, I feel it as a piece in my brain that I want out. Um, Not just, it's about having good information, sure, it's about acting in solidarity, But for me, since we've been doing the work with the Extinction Rebellion and really facing grief and trauma, I've been feeling family. You know, I've been looking at people and thinking sister, brother, you know, family coming back together. It's been the most beautiful thing because I've hardly been outside. I've been just on the bloody computer for hours with spreadsheets and stuff. Um, So building community feels like a second bit. Um... I was feeling at somewhat at odds in my community. I live in Stroud in Gloucestershire, and it's quite a, uh, like partly at least, quite a hippie place. And um, you know, there's a lot of folks, including myself, who talk about nature connection and 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 um, and and wanting to to reconnect and so on. And yet, you know, I'll say I'm going up to a fracking site for my birthday. Who wants to come? And like, you know, mic drop sort of moment. Um, so I. I went where we do our um, moon group together and really prayed with mugwort, more as an offering to the fire uh, that we would have, that sisters in my community would understand the work I was trying to do and would get behind it more. And just because it was making me feel completely alienated. I mean, when you really face the peace around climate change, I thought I'd done that, having been arrested at a fracking site and been to court and everything. Mm -mm, Hadn't looked at it properly. Uh, so, really praying and, you know, two days later, my friend Skeena found herself in a conference with Jen Bendel. I don't know if you've read his paper, I really recommend it on deep adaptation and came back semi-traumatised, you know, and with Gail we got to meet and went around my entire community pretty much saying, we've got to get real with this stuff and work together and do this Extinction Rebellion with Gail. So, that was a, an incredible blessing. So, community. So the, so, the, so, the third thing that I think about with, um, with plants med- medicines is the possibility that the universe is alive and has an inherent intelligence, and that we can communicate with the universe in some way. And so, I told you I'd failed a lot, and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was to do next. So I, you know, I'm asking, praying, I'm saying I'm here in service. I, I'm offering my life. What, what do I need to do? What are the codes for social change on this, on this retreat? And I came back and I tried to start a mass tax disobedience, uh, made a little video and uh, got it online, about 2000 hits, didn't work, another failure. <laughs> and Roger Hallam contacted me through the New Economics Organizers Network and said, love what you're doing, you're doing something that I'd call conditional commitment where I was asking people, I'll join your civil disobedience if if, if, if if 50 other people do it, or I was trying to get to 250,000 too quickly. Uh, big, big mistake. So Roger, anyway, said, come, let's have a meeting. And uh, we met in April in 2000. So my retreat was March 2016. We met in April 2016 and it was a total nerd off. I mean, it was one of the probably the best meeting of my life. Uh, he, he he was doing a lot of research uh, at King's College on social change, and so everything that I was doing, it had a graph for it, percentages. Um, yeah, that's that's really good that you're doing that. I'd set up a platform for what he's doing, but he he'd just gone round with a notepad because that was more effective. I'd overcomplicated it. Uh, what's useful in a rest, and we, we, we shared a lot, it went on for four hours this meeting, he said that he had a headache afterwards, I was just fucking buzzing. Um, and, and, I, and I said to him, my God, Roger, that's exactly, exactly what I needed to know. And um, he, he leaned over and tapped my notepad with all the notes on it taken four hours later and said, well, basically, Gail, what I've just given you here are the codes for social change. I mean, he used literally that exact the exact words of the prayer. It was, and I and I realised afterwards, you know, it's like the grandmother ayahuasca had gone. You know, Gail, we're delivering, babe. You know, (laughs) pay attention. So, um, so Roger and I were involved in in trying to find other activists to work with, and we've started this extinction rebellion process with a whole other bunch of people, and um, let's see where it gets to. Um, I got quite a few of the notes, Stephen, but I feel like, you know, well, should we stop and chat, or... Are you sure? I don't know, what do you think? Um, Shall we intuit? What does the universe think? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I guess what I want. one of the things I want to say is, I think with Extinction Rebellion, what's made a difference to me, and I think for some other people, is this willing to face the grief and the trauma of these times. And my experience of that has been like literally bursting into tears at odd times of the day, feeling completely, and and you can't do that on your own because you feel like you're going mad. You need to talk to other people, needing to say to friends like, I actually feel a bit alienated in our company if I don't tell you how I'm feeling about this stuff. It's like somebody's told you that your children have died or are gonna die and in in fact they have. there's something about grieving that opens the space for love and love opens the space for courage because you know what charles eisenstein's talking about is that we fight for what we love not because it's some physics tells us it's a bit of a bad idea the carbon dioxide when you really love something and you know i i sound melodramatic but i have got to that place where i would die for this you know i i'm taking lots of risks in my, in, in my life in leading being one of the people leading this movement and I just like I don't mean to sound you know I've got kids and responsibilities but part of me don't give a fuck you know and there's something in that spirit and there's something in the spirit of civil disobedience that's really important to get over because and I think maybe that's the place where I'll finish is I have a, a concern that people who are doing, you know, psychedelic medicines, doing the inner work, it's as if we all get to just do a bit of this thing. Like some people get to do the yoga, and I get to go to a fracking site, and that don't really feel totally fair. Um, uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> um, and some people get to build the new ways. And you know, recently somebody said, "Oh, I've set up this community, and that's my rebellion." And I said, "Babe." I love that you've done that. You know, I love that my friends started a plastic-free shop. That's a prayer. You know, that's a prayer for what we want to see, and it's so important. But capitalism don't give a fuck that you've done that. You know, like it—it it doesn't matter. It doesn't mind as long as you're um, not claiming benefits. It's going to smash you down. Or do you see what I mean? So, so there's something here about um, what, 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 where, where are we willing to step forwards? So, we were asking, how do we make this work? But what does this need from me? And about it's about bringing your best self forwards, what you're willing to die for, what you really believe in, where your will and heart are aligned and in service. And in that way, as my boyfriend Simon t- calls it, being a worthy ancestor. You know, you are, we are in this our culture doesn't hold this for us but you know people came before us and they're supposed to come after us but they might not because of what we're doing we, we get this amazing time I mean it's exciting actually rebelling is um fun <laughs> if you're on the bridges um so I suppose what I'm trying to say is that civil disobedience is a form of initiation because we are this system is us we are this system it's not we're not, we say no blaming and shame in an Extinction Rebellion, because, you know, the corporations, and of course, you know, it's not helpful. and loads of stuff that's happening, but we're all part of the system. And there's something uh, ceremonial and initiatory about being willing to break the law. And, of course, it's not for everybody if you've got migration status or caring duties or mental health issues. It's, it's not, but we know that we need 3.4% of the UK population or less so about two million people to rise up to make the change. We already exist, and we just need people to be in support of this active civil disobedience. So I'm asking us as if we're feeling like our rebellion is taking psychedelics or doing, you know, rebellion is breaking the law, in my opinion, and um, I hope you'll join us. Um, i I'll maybe need to say what the plans are for Extinction Rebellion going forwards. Um, shall I do that now at the end, will we we'll remember? Well, um, so the plan is from April 50. There'll be lots of build-up and um, actions in the meantime. And if you agree to our 10 principles and values, you can just crack on with stuff. There's, you don't need permission to, to do things. Uh, we're working really hard to decentralise as a network at the minute. I might say more about that in a bit. But the plan is not 100% finalised. So what I'm saying is um, just so for Hana, don't kick my ass later for <laughs> saying what. It's, but the plan at the minute is April the 15th. We're all piling into London, and we're just going to close it down till the government falls. And. <laughs> And that's what's happened in other countries. You just turn up and you, you 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 don't move. So book your time off work. We get a practical 15th, a couple of weeks, two, three weeks. We need to make it a festival for the future, you know, because it's in Gandhian nonviolence. there are three bits to this. Self-purification, which sounds a little bit hair shirt, but, you know, it's about getting ourselves in good order and our relationships in good order. Uh, Calling for the future, modeling what the future is. So, we need a festival on the streets, you know. So, if you've got stuff that you do, uh, you're permaculturalists or you're talking about new school systems or new health systems, let's bring it on the streets, man, you know, with no permission. Um, and um, then the other bit is the Satyagraha, so we'll be there on the streets. I mean, I've heard people talking about digging up the. R- I wonder if there's any police in the house tonight, because we just don't mind, you know, we're just open, above the ground. Police infiltrators often make themselves quite useful with vans, apparently, so we need vans. Um. <laughs> it it, it, it yeah, it, it, it takes the it takes the weight off when you don't give us stuff anymore and you're above the ground. It's just that's what we've got to do. So we're piling into London. and if you've got a pneumatic drill and you want to drill drill the road up and plant a tree, that's the kind of, be, you know, if there's like if there's if there's not a cycle path in your town, stop protesting about camp. Just paint a cycle path. You know, you know, see what I mean. So thank you. So, anyway, book it in your diaries. And um, if uh, Bex and other people, we've got leaflets. But we, one of the beauties of Roger Hallam, and there are many beautiful things about that man and really annoying stuff as well, but it um, is systematising everything. You know, you don't have a room full of people and not get you all on the database. So you will be tied to your chair until you're in the, in the database if you want to be. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep communicating. Thank you.
0: Are these on? Can you no. hear us? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Gail. Um, so maybe I'll s- just start by playing devil's advocate on the, the topic. No, of don't. Go on. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, cause we, had a, we had a couple of posts on the Facebook event early on actually saying uh, things along the lines of psychedelics are a distraction. Um, there's you know there's work to do. There's the real work of rebellion to do. We don't need more people sort of losing themselves into yoga and meditation and eastern philosophy and all that crap. And like this is urgent. This is important. Um, and other another related perspective was that uh, it's just it's just not necessary. Like extinction rebellions really got this momentum going. What what utility is there in kind of making any association with this? Somewhat fringe, you know, effort to you know f- to legalize psychedelics or to uh, advocating the use of psychedelic substances. Uh, what would you say to those people? Who, some of whom may be in the audience. Yeah. yeah.
3: Um, well, I think there's a place where they're right. Like what I was trying to say is, don't get distracted on your yoga mat. We we sometimes say we want some of the <laughs> activists to get on the yoga mats and some of the yoga mat people to get on the streets. So, I think there's a place for um, mistrust of. You know the hippie woo woo stuff within activism I, I I understand that it frustrates me too. I um, just told the story of why it's been incredibly useful to me i wouldn't we wouldn't have extinction rebellion i don 't think if psychedelics hadn't been part of the story at least from my perspective, it might have happened um, I, I I think that if and when we wake up sufficiently to figure out just what kind of a mess we are in relationship to ourselves to each other and to the planet I have this vision I know other people who ha- share this of you know football stadium worth of people doing psychedelic medicines in a safe and held way to to heal the traumas that we're carrying it's deep you know the sort of definition of patriarchy is the idea that we're in scarcity and separation and we're powerless and um if i'd spent 25 years messing about with various different therapies which possibly had helped uh, pave the way but for me psychedelics were a uh, maybe should hesitate to say this but i don't know they felt like quite a shortcut they felt like they got to the core so yeah,
0: yeah. it makes me think of well um, want to ask what is the nature of this of this rebellion, this revolution, at the most fundamental level. I mean, you you say we're going to sit in London until the government falls, um, but you know, or then what? Or is is that it? Like, it strikes me that like, if we're not, you know, as as happened in the Arab Spring, for example, like ev- an even worse bunch can can come along if we're not careful. And I'm not suggesting that you know in, that you have a, you need to have a, like a master plan to like spell out sort no, of like do. a five year plan <laughs> or whatever. We've evil master plan. Um, uh, but I'm reminded of the quote from, um, from Ursula K. Le Guin, which has actually, I think, been one of the Extinction Rebellion newsletters, um, which is uh, something along the lines of uh, the revolution is in, your, is in our soul or is nowhere at all. Uh, and uh, it seems to me to a challenging but incredibly important piece to work out how... We can, we can marry this, this, this inner work and this inner transformation with uh, meaningful, political, you know, direct action out there on the streets.
3: Um, so you had about three different points in there, didn't you? So, the, so, so um, it's so corny, but the revolution is love. You know, yeah. it is, isn't it, if you, it, sorry? Yes, yes, yes. Come on. it say is! Say it with pride, the revolution <laughs> is love. And um, I feel deeply in love with the people that I'm working with. I mean, we, we had this gathering this weekend um, to start talking about some of the plans going forwards, and there's one for people involved next weekend, by the way. But my friend um, Skeena, who, who I prayed and she came through with Jen Bendel, was on a call afterwards, and she said she was just crying and, uh, on, this, on this conference call. And the person she was supposed to be on a call was like, What's wrong with Skeena? She's like, No, everything's right. Because finally, getting to work in a place where you feel like you know we we're, we're trying to be what you call a teal organization self management we've got some way to go, but we're working towards that um, uh, and the place where you can bring your whole self to to the movement, and that's okay and then there's a a third thing in teal organizing, isn't there, which is um, evolutionary purpose, the idea that there's a purpose that might be bigger than any of us yeah. so you know, when you're talking about these things, you talk about love. You could talk about evolutionary purpose. There might be something that emerges from this movement that's bigger than any of us. Uh, but there is also that systematic nerdy layer as well, where we have got plans. <laughs> and uh, if you, you know, one of the social change books that I read was Tim Gee's. He talks about counterpower. There's four bits to um, social change that you have to uh, raise consciousness. You need to coordinate between different groups. You need a confrontation moment. It doesn't work without the petitions aren't going to do it. And you need to consolidate your win. You need to be really clear about what you want so that it's not like you don't want to bring down a dictator. You want to install a democracy. And actually on that layer, I don't think Extinction Rebellion is really about the environment. I think it's about democracy and I think one of the super clever things about it, which wasn't my invention, it was Roger's, so I can honor him in that, was uh, we haven't got any solutions, you know, it's just saved so many arguments, it's hilarious, you know, well, what are you calling for? Well, you know, a citizens' assembly where, I mean, we say tell the truth, the government has to tell the truth and uh, it must reverse policies that are inconsistent with that truth, so therein lies the opportunity to ask for structural demands like no fracking, uh, no third runway or whatever. Um, the second one is uh, lowering carbon emissions, but also cutting consumption to do with the ecological overshoot. But the third one is like, well, how do we go about that? Well, we're not going to say, because I tell you what, the minute you say one thing that you think should happen to do with the environment, somebody's at your throat for like... I Like I thought the regenerative agriculture sounded really cool and then the vegans had it in the neck for me. You know, it's just not... Sorry, vegans. It was it's just like... <laughs> some. Uh, uh, Sorry, I felt... That actually, that was a bit rude. I was just being a bit cheeky. But um, there are some people... There's something about regenerative agriculture that I think has an association with animal agriculture that some people felt upset about. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that... Uh, and some people really want a carbon tax and other people don't. So why why should any of us get to decide, you know? The, the, the Citizens' Assembly approach is by sortition, that you have 1,000... Um, is it 1,000 people, found You have a lot of people... Uh, it'll be, be bus drivers and t- school teachers and a whole spectrum from society picked at random. Experts will say what the issues are and what the possibilities and they'll decide. So it's very cleverly b- about so, bringing in democracy.
0: Yeah, you said, so I see how this is, this is about democracy and about new ways of organising as much as it is about ecology and environment. Um, uh, I think that it seems to me that Extinction Rebellion as a movement has an incredibly important uh, opportunity of responsibility even to prove that we can organise in new ways. Because presumably one of the things that's kind of come out as citizens' citizen assembly is this political system's fucked and we don't want it anymore. But, you know, but, and Extinction Rebellion itself can be an example of, of, of decentralised organising, of teal organising, showing that it can work. And for these new ways of organising to work... Uh, it seems to me that, yeah, we need to transform ourselves because self, in my experience, you know, somewhat limited experience, but growing uh, self-management only work, decentralized organizations only work if people have really got their shit together, you know, and like are truly aware and conscious and and loving of of those around them and that seems to me I, I focused more on the aspect of psychedelics which i think was kind of last in your list which was about um, you know their ability to bring about these mystical spiritual type experiences and have these you know, help people have these experiences of, of unity with, with nature and or even beyond nature um, i didn't focus so much on their like healing and therapeutic benefit which is actually the point you started on, and um, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's as as well as this helping in, like uh, people really capture this this kind of paradigm shift into this Gaian worldview. Uh, we we're all carrying around a lot of trauma. It seems to me that that affects our ability to cooperate with one another, and uh, uh, facing up to that trauma and uh, and you know I- integrating it is going to be Incredibly important uh, in in determining whether we can cooperate in genuinely new ways and can actually function as a new type of organization. Does that inspire anything?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we talk about having or wanting to have a regenerative agriculture in Extinction Rebellion. Ag- agriculture and or regenerative culture. 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 Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm still slightly ashamed about the vegan comment. To be honest, will somebody's Forgive me for that. Um, um, so uh, yeah, and I think you know part of that is asking people to uh, think about their own triggers and what they bring, and also saying to each other, trying to have some flexibility about what we bring to to meetings. So every meeting that we're in, we read out this regenerative culture reminder to slow down your yes, um, to not call people out online because doesn't it get toxic online really quickly? Mm-hmm. Uh, to deal with things face-to-face if issues are arising. Um, there's a whole pile of work needs to be done in the environmental movement. Some's been done in the past, but through Extinction Rebellion, um, we're calling to do you know, the work of decolonisation and uh, justice work and so on. And I think there's needed to be a bit of a sequencing. So, uh, because there was, like... I, I mean, Rising Up was about 50 of us really sort of 20 to 30 would turn up to things relatively regularly There was 15 of us in a room in may deciding to do this thing so you, you had some decision makers and not because we're like you know ego maniacs we just nobody else give a shit that they <laughs> so we were just doing it um and then you, then this thing takes off and um it's what we're needing to do with the movement is convert kind of like you know maybe it is a car to a train while it's still driving in into a decentralized network. Uh, we're working with some brilliant experts on that. Mickey Kashtan, an awesome woman who does a call every two weeks that people anybody can join and listen in and ask questions of her about how you go about decentralizing and a, a guy who's an expert in uh, and To finding the right structure, it, it does feel like it has to be really quite fractal. So... There's the sort of get the UK layer right. We know that we need stuff around media and messaging and, you know, actions and so on. You have to have legal stuff and finance and blah, blah, blah. And then they can can be mirrored in local groups after a while and maybe in other countries. And so there's these kind of fractal layers. And you realise that if we get that right um first of all it feels like a huge pile of energy is going to be unleashed because there's an awful lot of people want to get involved and you know making sure we can onboard people in a good way and that they find a place that works for them awful lot of energy to be unleashed and um, uh, the second thing is it does feel very prefigurative of where we're supposed to get to and I know one of the things that excited me Steve and maybe you could say more about it is is the idea that Decentralised networks might move on to blockchain technologies with cryptocurrencies. You know how, at the minute, the way the finance works is it's relatively power shared, but you know it's a concentration of power, isn't it? Anything to do with cash, so you know that's an exciting possibility.
0: Well, first, uh, just um, the, on the first part of what you said, yeah, it seems to me that the uh, the culture that we're creating in movements like Extinction Rebellion and the Psychedelic Society, if we want them to grow, is at least as important as the structures that we put in place, and uh, I'm—I—I uh, I, I don't know. I'm—I'm I'm curious to discover more. Um, uh, let me rephrase that. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm keen to be part of the team of people making sure there is a truly healthy, like regenerative culture within Extinction Rebellion. Um, Perhaps involving psychedelic substances, but there are tons of practice, other practices that we've that we've referred to, where um, and, and and embeds this idea that no, these are absolutely not a, a distraction. Like if you if you're not keeping yourself well and healthy and and chilled, and then you're no use to anybody, not yourself, not anybody else. And um, it's it's so I've you know. I've, it 's so tempting to just when there 's a big idea and there 's this sense of urge and there is you know this genuine urgency it seems at this point in time um, to avoid kind of large scale you know, collapse in our civilizations and in you know, uh, and the further extinction of other species to just dive in, throw ourselves in and like whatever and well, maybe I can skip that meal and maybe I can de- deal with four hours' sleep and like it doesn 't take long for everything to in my experience to to come crashing down and so um, we have to. Uh, it seems to me, do, uh, like have have the discipline to <laughs> to to keep each other in, well, <laughs> R- rather than be encouraging each other. Um, you know, to to give more than actually than we can in in a, a sustainable. Way. And this not to say there aren't going to be moments where now now is the time to stay up all night on some amazing action. Now now's the time to get arrested and spend two nights on a cell and whatever. But um, to to come to those moments, feeling in a place of of health and power, so that we have something to give, rather than like that's the thing that like breaks us. Because actually, that was kind of the experience of UConn cut. It was that it was a mass arrest in Fortnum and Masons that really took a whole load of energy out of the movement. And There are other reasons, but that was yeah, well, that was important. And then never being able to really recover our same like vibrancy. Um, so um, you have something to say on that word, so can you
3: well i I suppose what comes to mind is this concept of sacrifice. you know there can be a really toxic version of that that's sort of martyrdom mm-hmm. uh and certainly my I am a bit overwhelmed with the emails at the minute and trying to mm-hmm. offload as much of, of of the work um thank you Lorraine and others <laughs> taking on the finances but um but I think there's a really healthy aspect to the idea of sacrifice you know that's not about putting yourself through a mangle but it's about what, what am I I think what I was trying to say up there was what, what am I called to give and how am I called to serve so how do we find that peace in ourselves that's willing to step forwards because I think you know going back to the the, the peace around regenerative culture there's uh, and teal organisations there's um, an indulgence that can come as well uh in in the sort of white western middle class you know not to use those labels in a shaming way but you know there can be a sort of indulgence and if you read Ken Wilber talking about integral thinking and the shift in consciousness I think that comes from this emergency mode shift that goes wow you know I'm here to in these times surely I have some service to do but I I um and what he says, if if, if you've read about these, because he put colours to these classifications, it's not for everybody that sort of approach. But the, the the green layer is the kind of progressive left, and it talks about pluralism and uh, how everybody's all cool. And yet, it's we sort of sit there in some judgment, <laughs> it's sort of a little bit contradictory. And that's the layer that's supposed to jump to this teal layer, if that means anything to people. But the thing that Ken Wilber says is in the way is narcissism. You know, the culture that we live in is deeply, deeply narcissistic. What about me, you know? My, me, 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 you know, me Don't they call it. Uh, in April, when we were making the decision to do Extinction Rebellion, I remember again Roger said um, to us all, well, what's going to get in the way of you doing this well? And uh, I thought, honestly, about that question, I thought, you know, I quite like it. The I minute mean, I was still doing a lot of activism and um, I, lots of things. We, we were working with Land Justice now. We did a mass trespass. With it. I was feeling a bit smug, you know, <laughs> like a bit self-righteous. I'm like this activist and I'm doing more than you. You know, it's all in there, isn't it? Do you see what I mean? And where's that place where it's about all of us and we're together and we're willing to put ourselves forward and it's not indulgent, but it's not burnout either? I think we've just got to figure that out. And again, I don't think you figure out any of that on your own. It's a a team conversation.
0: For me, I think it's in having these uh, profound experiences of of connection with the non-human world that uh, have made me realize and uh, it seems to be the experience of others that we are vastly more powerful strong energetic capable than we imagined and that and i, th- that, I think that comes from really understanding what's at stake um and to for to for this for this narrative to shift to oh humanity's kind of fucked. we don't do something about climate change or, you know, this, these other ecological problems, then, um, you know, things are going to get bad for me or my family or even my community or even, you know, my country, even humanity, um, offers, you know, a, a, a certain level of motivation and, and energy. But if we can expand that to and enter to this new story of, of, of service, it is service, of um, we've – humans have, have, have shown beyond doubt their capacity to to, to, to dominate nature – and now it's our time to step into a new story of of regenerating nature, of actually becoming the uh, the, the protectors of uh, of the natural world. And I think from that that new story, we can obtain th- there are huge new reserves of you know of energy of of possibility.
3: I mean, I think the way again, Charles Eisenstein. We're obviously big fans, aren't we? Together, but talks about it's like we're teenagers, and we've been allowed to have a bit of a party, and we've fucking wrecked the joint. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, my my friend uh, Jamie Kelsey Fry, he, he he says it all the time. It's quite funny, but you know, he's got this thing about the violin. You know, we've got this violin in front of us. I mean, is this the best that humanity can do? Like what's out there at the minute really you know we're incredible like the unit as far as we know there's no other intelligent life anywhere on the planet less the the um, zoo um, there's a there's one theory the zoo theory that there is intelligent life and it's gently stroking its chin and looking at us and wondering if it's time for us to grow up yet or not it doesn't want to interfere like a good parent so that might be why there's no intelligent life communicating with it that or they get to our level and they blow the system up like we're doing you know so you can take whichever story you prefer but um, you know this idea that we are you know, we, we're, we're this intelligent life force that we understand nature to, to the degree that we do the physics, the uh, the, the love that's in our hearts, and like, really, is this the best? You know, as Jamie said, it's like we've got this violin and we're hitting it with a bloody spoon. <laughs> no, 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 you know, when are we going to pick it up and play it? And I think that that's a really wonderful way of saying, you know, this is what we need to bring to the streets, really, is our deepest longings, our deepest dreams together of what what something else looks like and I really also in that have a prayer that we just get rid of this like left-right narrative, you know, that there's some polarised oppositional thing going off. Uh, I am much more left-leaning and my boyfriend's always criticising I've got Jeremy Corbyn mug and stuff but... um, you know there's something on the right narrative that's possibly more about personal responsibility, the sort of libertarian right seem yeah. to have some cool and like let's be re- remember that we're a family and that you know like Joe Cox says we've got more in common and create something beautiful yeah. you
0: well, know this This is a big part of the green to teal or postmodern to metamodern shift that's whether you're using integral language or metamodern language is acknowledging that that all perspectives. Uh, have their validity, have their importance in some way, teaching us uh, that it, the importance of of listening. Um, there's, there's there's a book, The Listening Society, which describes um, like meta modern thought, and it, it, you know has that title f- for a reason. And um, I'm it's it, as we discussed earlier, actually today. It was my hope that in this conversation, as much as the the content that we cover we could go a small way to simply to to modeling a new actually way of ha- having a conversation and having a kind of g- genuinely just like open and vulnerable and generative dialogue um without really knowing what the answers are without having some, any particular agenda to push out there um how do you think it's gone to kind of like get a bit meta because we <laughs> because we're coming to time
3: yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. well um, ho- hopefully that that's all worked i mean i guess what was on my mind as you were talking was and I, we're going to break out in a bit so I'm just wondering if anybody's got any thoughts on this one because I'd love to hear there's there's something of the justice work that needs to happen with Extinction Rebellion the acknowledgement of the plundering that the West has done elsewhere and the bringing people to account and the reparations and the stopping of harm, in, and um I'm not very up-to-date on anti-oppressive practice. I mean, I did a lot of it in, uh, several years ago. I feel out of date. So I want to update myself, but and I want that to be part of what happens in the movement. But I I want it to feel really heartfelt and not about blaming and shaming and, and, and about reconnection mm. and uh, not this left-right analysis piece within that. And I'm just, I'm sure somebody's figured that out there to do that in a really good way. So I'm just asking... If that made any sense to people it's kind of how we how we bring our family back together and you know acknowledge um, you know racism is at the heart of the climate crisis for example it's one of the pieces how we do that piece of work in a way that's um restorative for us all mm. I, I'm interested to know who's doing that piece so
0: there's a question so, Shall we take a couple of questions in and then we'll break for food uh, so yeah, it will really only just be a couple so Make them really good ones. Yes, sir. Um, I think it's best, actually, if you come up to the stage, if you don't mind, so if you can speak into the microphone. We don't have a roaming mic at this point. Uh, Aha, here we go. It's coming to you around here. So I'm going to be cheeky and ask a question, just in case you guys didn't have the chance, which is I've been involved in uh, Extinction Rebellion, I'd be really interested, after hearing all of this, how many of the audience is interested in finding out more than they already know? So that was my question to the audience. So just who, not that you committed, but who's interested in finding out more? Just hands up. About? about about Extinction Rebellion. Mm -hmm. Great, that was my question. Okay, good. (laughs) That was a good start. You both touched on this subject, but I want to know more. What's the impact of your
2: experiences um, has had with your relationship with your own feminine?
0: With our own feminine, was that? Family, I beg your pardon. Um, uh, Let's see. So, as I mentioned, both my parents have passed away now. Um, When I first started the Psychedelic Society, uh, my sister was was extremely sceptical and just worried about me. She didn't really have much knowledge of the substances. Um, I mean, that's actually... I'm, I'm skipping a bit. It probably shed a similar feeling to when I first got involved in ac- in activism, in climate activism, you know? It's just like, what are you doing? Like, Can't you just live a normal life and get a normal job and like not put yourself in risk? And uh, I think that came from a place of love. Um, I do remember the, fir- um, the first time uh, I... Uh, so i was at my I was at a house party with my brother and uh, i had decided to offer him some mdma um, and it was which is, you know, kind of has psychedelic effects at some doses, it is a popular psychoactive substance. Um, and uh, I sort of took him to a corner and was like, I'm gonna, you know, this, this is some MDMA. And I explained what it might do and the effects it might have. And he looked at me like I was stupid and he said, I've taken this dozens of times before, what are you doing? So, like, it's um, sometimes you can be surprised that. Um, that uh, that there was certainly a, a generation, you know, of the children of the late 60s and 70s where there was a, a lot of psychedelic substances around. Um, so sometimes for their, to find out their children have rediscovered them, it's like, oh, finally, great. We can talk about it again. Maybe we can even take them together and so on. So um, you, yeah, you can't be surprised. I actually said feminine, not family, but it makes sense. <laughs>
3: so so my journey with this is that probably skipped over quite quickly was sitting in a, a moon group with women uh, uh, people who identify as female in some way um, with the full moon and the medicine really there's the fire and for me there's been I think I'm quite a masculine woman in some ways and I think there's been something about really deepening into intuition and the bit I didn't uh, share just because of time with the aboga uh, journey, was that um, it kind of closed off my left brain and left a voice about an inch into my right brain that talked to me. She didn't have a lot of words. She's a bit bossy. And she every time I was having a negative thought, she'd say, stop it. And um, that's when the, the, the rewiring happened. So I, uh, after a bit, I kind of, uh, you know... I, I, my left brain was hearing this, you, you get to be happy. And, and um, it said cynically, well, I bet that won't last all night. And she said, no, you, re- you need to relearn to be happy. So a lot of the evening was spent with the um, thinking of people I loved and the happiness channel. It felt like getting reinforced. And then the left brain would go, "Yeah, you know, wait till that other fucking tablet kicks in. You know, this will end then. She said, no, you've got to be happy all night long. And I thought there's a fucking voice talking to me in my head. <laughs> uh, it was really, you know, very... It was not a little thing. It was absolutely there, and I said, "Are you my higher person?" And she said, "Yes." And I, I feel a little bit. There's a humility in telling that story. You know, it's like a big deal. You know, it's like a personal thing. Um, not a, oh look at me! I've been in touch with my higher self. Aren't I great. You know what I mean? It, it, so, um, for me, the the I think the Talking to a woman today about this, um you know, it's there's a rise in feminine that's talked about. And especially not necessarily especially, but when you're a, a mother and and you've got children and I there's there's something that a lioness that's ready to roar when the sisterhood gets healed. So a lot of the work has been around re, you know, sitting with sisters and sharing where we're at. Has been part of the journey and the medicine of fire is transformation. Um and uh the women have been incredible actually. I mean, I don't want to do any disservice to the men. There's Dave there who sits doing beautiful work, thank you. Uh but you know, the women are just there's something else, isn't it? For you know, it's it's a a feeling of sisterhood. Uh is I well, I, I can't put it into words. That there was a there was a moment when everything was just really kicking off just before we did the launch on the 31st. And these, I can't even remember what the women were doing, but they were in and they were up and they were getting stuff done. And I was like, uh, we realised that we were going to have 1,000 people in Parliament Square, not 100. We didn't know what the police were going to do. My boyfriend, who was organising, was panicking. And I was like, the women are rising. Because my bloody blood pressure's rising, Gail. <laughs>
2: Hi, um, I'm Francesca, thank you so much for your presentations. I'm really happy I'm here. Um, so my question is very specific and it's not a criticism, it's just I, was, I would like to know your opinion. Because um, for the people who have experience with psychedelics, we can see and as you have said, we create a reality. And consciousness flows where we place our attention. And so I was curious about why the choice of extinction, rebellion, because this way the focus is on extinction and rebelling. not Why not something like regenerative reunification, you know? Um, so I want, would like to know what you think.
0: Um, that would be the last question. So.
3: I think it's a really good question. And the... Uh, You know, it's a 25 step process, painful process, picking a name and everybody nearly fell out with each other over it, if I'm honest, (laughs) it's a nightmare. Uh, And we just handed it to this art team, this branding team and said, will you just pick something before we go mad? Uh, And I think it's the right phrase because, you know, you've got to capture something, we often call it XR, but you have to capture uh, what the issue is and what you're doing about it. So, you know, when you talk about unity and peace and what we're really longing for, it doesn't really capture the initial peace. Jane Morton talks about emergency mode messaging, it's really worth looking it up. And one of the things we do need to do is is talk about the vision more, talk about the possibilities of what humans can do. But I think we have to foreground this with telling the truth about the what what is happening um, and what we need to do about it in the, in the first iteration, which is to rebel so that's why we're in extinction rebellion and you know we thought sort of thought about having strap lines um people have used the phrase re- regenerate renew rejoice re- reconnect reuse you, you can carry on can't you rebel
0: the uh there is uh a movement in the united states that's like taking action along sim- similar lines called the sunrise movement and uh what did, what did you call it? regenerative unification? Sounds brilliant. I'd say do it, you know? Like, Extinction Rebellion seems to hold a very important place in this ecology of organizations and a particular energy that's absolutely necessary, but it doesn't have to be the only thing out there. And yeah, there's plenty of, of time and scope. We're gonna need everyone's help, everyone's ideas, um, if we're gonna get ourselves and all the other species on this planet out of this mess. Um, so I think that's probably a decent place to end for now. Um, so a couple of instructions. We are about to rearrange the room. So please take all of your bags and coats with you. Uh, Food is now being served outside in the foyer for those that have previously bought a a meal ticket. Um, Otherwise, feel free to float around the hall and we'll see you again at 9.30. Thank you very much.